So we're starting a new series today. It's called The Book of Acts. <laughs> I, figured, um, I figured after spending three months uh, with the, the artwork that I figured it was time to, to change it up a little bit. So we, uh, we have new artwork that we're going to have for a little bit. And then um, I'll get up here and I'll tell you we're doing another new series. Probably still be the Book of Acts. but All right, we are actually in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Before I start, I'm going to embarrass uh, someone real quick. Um, we mentioned birthdays during Sunday school, um, but uh, one of our birthdays that is today, uh, she was not here in Sunday school. So, Miss Amber Clark over here, I hope uh, she, she is turning red, so I am embarrassing her. Today is her birthday, so please, uh, if, you get a, if you get a moment before they dip out, although judging from the look on her face, she's going to dip out pretty quick. Um, <laughs> If you get a moment, go over and wish her a happy birthday. I'm sure she would uh, definitely appreciate that. So, all right, Acts chapter 6 is uh, where we're at. And we are continuing to, to go through. Right now, uh, if you've been with us for the past three months or so, um, all of the things that we've looked at here in the book of Acts have taken place in the city of Jerusalem. All right, the, 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 this, uh, the apostles were gathered in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came to them in Jerusalem. They were in the temple preaching in Jerusalem. All of these things took place in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see here in the next two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, so over the next uh, about two or three weeks, um, it's still going to take place in Jerusalem, but we are getting to a turning point in the in the book of Acts and the story of the early church. And once we finish with this, I know I'm kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen. Um, we're going to see that if you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. Well, we're going to see once we get through chapter 7 that that starts to happen, that the disciples are dispersed and spread out. Um, figured I'd just give you a little... So to pique your interest in hopes that you'll, uh, you'll join us again. But Acts chapter 6, um, verse 7, we are going to see uh, another, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, down through verse 7, we're going to see uh, a business meeting taking place in the church. All right, so let's go ahead and read, and we'll, uh, we'll pray, and we'll jump to it. Acts 6, 1 through 7 says this, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, be with our time. We ask that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts. Make us receptive to what you have to for us to learn here from this scripture, Lord. I pray that you would make us more like your son, that we would become, um, we would progress in our sanctification and become more like your son as a result of us being here today. 
we, we thank you that we're able to gather and study your word. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. Okay. Um, so what we're going to take a look at here today is servants in the church. All right? Servants in the church. I've been doing a lot of reading and studying over this, as I typically do. Um, and, and there's a couple things that I want to point out. So the first thing... Uh, the first thing that we see in Acts chapter 6, in verse 1, is the fact that there was a problem in the church. There was a problem in the church. Let me read that verse again real quick. It says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. There was a problem in the church. And it it's fairly safe to say, I think it's fairly safe to say, that any time an individual or an organization is starting to make an impact for Jesus Christ, Satan is not going to be pleased with that. And he is going to come at that organization or at that individual in hopes of derailing them or destroying the things that, they're, that they are wanting to do. And while Satan can't cause us to sin, we sin of our own volition, he can certainly bring the temptation to you that will cause, will cause you to look at it and go, yeah, I like that better than I like what's over here, and cause you to fall into sin. Um, just this past week, uh, you guys know that I, I study or I, I follow and I study the, the inner workings of the Southern Baptist Convention. And just this past week, the CEO, basically the guy in charge of the executive committee, it was either this week or the following, he's got a guy named Frank Page, he announced his retirement, just abruptly, just said, I'm retiring. And then the story came out that he had actually had an inappropriate relationship with someone else. He had fallen to temptation, and he had to step away. This was a man who had been a pastor for many, many years, and he was leading one of the largest denominations in the United States, and he fell to temptation. We're all susceptible to it. And this is why Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5.8 that Satan is a roaring lion. He's not a little dude running around in red pajamas with a pitchfork. He's a lion, and he's looking for opportunities to devour us. Now, in the book of Acts, what we've seen so far up in the first uh, five chapters leading into chapter six is we've seen Satan try to destroy the church a number of different ways. The first way he tried to do it was he tried to do it through persecution. In Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, we saw persecution where Peter and John were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin and told that they had to stop doing it. It didn't work. In fact, what happened was after the persecution, lots of people got saved. So, so Satan, he regrouped and he said, okay, if I can't destroy it through persecution, I'm going to infiltrate it with sin. And we saw that in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter uh, 5, sorry, I'm going to make sure I had the right number, with Ananias and Sapphira. And what happened? It didn't work. In fact, they tried to get the sin in. Ananias and Sapphira were removed from the church, literally removed from the church, and people got saved as a result of what happened. So Satan came again, and he said, okay, this time I'm going to bring more persecution. It's going to be even more severe. And he brought persecution. Peter and John were arrested. This time they were beaten severely. And they were released, and you would think that that would have been, okay, you know what, we've been in jail twice now because of this. You would have thought that that would have been the end of the church. What happened? The church exploded. People got saved all over the place, and they were excited at the fact that they were judged worthy to be persecuted. Since none of these things worked, what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is Satan is, he said, okay, 
Um, persecution didn't work. Trying to infiltrate it with sin didn't work. Persecution didn't work. I'm going to bring grumbling into the church. I'm going to bring murmuring, and I'm going to, I'm going to bring dissension into the church. And that's exactly what we see right here. When the outside pressures failed to destroy, he thought he would, Satan tried to pull the church apart from the inside by setting people in the church against each other. And so what we see here in Acts chapter 1 is we've got these two groups of Jews. We have the Hellenistic Jews and we have the Hebraic Jews. And it kind of helps to understand why there were those two groups. The Hebraic Jews were Jews that were born in Palestine. They were born in Israel and they spent their whole lives in Israel. They were taught out of the Hebrew Bible. They were taught to despise anything that was Greek. They were taught to despise the Gentiles. Right? They, they basically, if it was not Jewish, if it was not Hebrew, they hated it and wanted no part of it. The Hellenistic Jews, on the other hand, were Jewish people. They were born Jews, but for whatever reason, they were dispersed throughout the Roman kingdom. And because they were dispersed throughout the Roman kingdom, they started to adopt different parts of the Greek culture into their lives. So they, instead of reading the Hebrew Bible, they used a Greek translation called the Septuagint. And they would adapt uh, Greek ways of dressing and, and all of those things. And when, uh, but oftentimes they would return back to Jerusalem for the feast, like the Feast of Pentecost and the, the Feast of Tents and those things. Um, and that was, that was when they had an encounter with the message that the, the apostles were preaching. And many of them either stayed in Jerusalem after that happened or relocated so they could be a part of the church. And what we see here is that there was a system set up in the church to help take care of the widows, help take care of, uh, of the, the, the ladies, the older ladies who did not have a means of taking care of themselves. But what happened was Satan got in and started, started poking around, and some of the Hellenistic Jews said, hey, you guys are not taking care of our people. You're not taking care of our people. You're not doing the things that we, we want them to do. And it was these two groups that were in conflict with each other. The same thing happens today. All right? You'd be surprised. <laughs> There's oftentimes grumbling in the church. I know that that's a shock. Some of you look completely shocked to hear that. Right? What happens is, is we get in groups. We get in groups. And that's a good thing. Right? We want to be around people who are like us. That's why we, we have clubs and, and all of those things. That's why um, you know, we, we, we want to be with, with people that we have things in common with. There's nothing worse than trying to, to create a group of people who have absolutely nothing in common with each other. Sometimes Tina and I will joke that we have nothing in common. But it turns out you know, we've been married for almost 14 years. We do have quite a bit in common. But when I start talking about the Goonies or the Karate Kids, she'll look at me and go, how did we ever end up together? I'm like, wax on, daniel son, wax off, right? Yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll say those types of things. The problems arise, though, is when we think that one group is getting more attention than our group, right? Or when one group is getting to do something that our group isn't doing. That's when we start to grumble, and that's when we start to complain. And sometimes that grumbling blows up. And do you know who wins in that situation? Satan wins. Because when, when, when arguments between groups in the church come to a head and they explode and people say ugly things and some people say, oh, you know what, I'm taking my ball and I'm going down the street and I'm going to start another church, you know who wins in that case? Satan wins. Because it sets a bad example in the, in the, the, 
in the community. So what's the solution for that? The solution is, and we talked about this previously, we need to put the needs of others above the needs of ourselves. We, we saw that the, the members of the church in Acts chapter 4, at the end of Acts chapter 4, that they were trying to outdo themselves in ministering to other people. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Sometimes we have to take our preferences, the things that we want, and we have to set them aside in order to be a minister to somebody else. Our unity as a church needs to be one of the most vital components of who we are. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 through 4 says this, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. The folks here in Acts, in, uh, Acts 6, 1, they weren't necessarily doing that. They were looking out for their own group instead of looking out for others. They brought this to the disciples, and the disciples said, okay, yeah, that is a problem. Which leads us to point number two, the proposed solution. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses, uh, or I'm sorry, Acts 6, 2 through 6 says this. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from, among, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom you can appoint, whom we can appoint for to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. I noticed Pumbaa wasn't on this list. All right. Parmenius, thank you. I'm glad somebody got that. Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. All right. The root of this, yes, there was this conflict. There was this conflict between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews that one group wasn't getting their needs met. That was the root of this, con or the root of this controversy was that there were people in the church who felt that they weren't getting enough attention from the pastors. That's basically what this boiled down to, is they said, hey, we're over here, you're not paying enough attention to us, it feels like you're paying more attention to this group over here. They may have, had, they may have said it had something to do with the food, and it probably did, but that was probably just the straw that broke the camel's back in that case. Um, sorry. And it was this controversy, it was this problem, this thing that came to them that showed Peter and the other, the other 11 that they weren't able to do everything. And that was probably a humbling moment for Peter and the rest of them. Because up to this point, things had been going great. Things had been going great. But suddenly this arose and Peter and the other 11, I imagine they sat down and they got, went, guys, we can't do this. This is beyond what we are able to do. And so with this in mind, the fact that they were unable to meet all of the needs of the 10,000 plus people that made up the church, can you imagine that? 12 people trying to meet the, meet, meet the needs of 10,000 people. I don't even know what 10,000 people looks like. It would be a little, it would probably, I mean, imagine this guy going to a Nationals game. They get 10,000 people, right? I know the keys don't. Anyway, we're, we're getting off of that. I'm talking baseball. Some of you had already checked out, but... 
So what they decided to do is they called the church together and they confessed that they were not going to be able to keep up with what was going on. And trying to do, trying to do everything was pulling them away from what God had called them to do, which was to study the scripture and to pray for the church. They were so caught up in trying to do the day-to-day business of the church that it was pulling them away from the most important thing. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt like there were so many little things that you had to do that it was pulling you away from the main thing? That's exactly the place that Peter and the rest of the uh, apostles were finding themselves. And I'm going to be honest, that's a tough thing for us to hear. That's a very tough thing for us to hear. For to, to hear a pastor say, I can't do everything, and trying to do these things is pulling me away from what God has called me to do. Because we have these, we have these, these things set up for pastors, and I'm, I'm speaking of myself because I've been in this boat. We have these expectations that we set up for pastors that when we're sick, we want the pastor to be right there. And we expect the pastor to be at, at, at every event. And we have all of these expectations. And sometimes the pastor doesn't live up to those expectations. And it, what ends up happening is if we build If we build this image of the pastor up in our minds and he fails to meet those, it all crashes to the ground. It all crashes to the ground. One of the most influential men in my life, I've talked talked about him before, was my youth pastor. His name is uh, Art Gadomsky. He was was one of the most influential men in my life. And I had built him up to be the most amazing, wonderful person in the world. And the day that I found out that he left his wife and left his kids and is no longer associated with ministry anymore, it absolutely crushed me. Because I relied on art for everything. The reason that I'm standing before you today is because of the influence that art had on my life. I built him up to be this wonderful person and he fell into temptation and it crushed me. I mean, it was, it was very, very hard. And, and that's, that's a, a tough pill for us to swallow because we build our pastors up to be these, these wonderful supermen. And they're like, oh, they're in the ministry. God must give them superpowers to do all of these things. And then when you find out that they put their pants on the same way that everybody else does, Amen. then it, it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem, right? But being a, be, a pastor is called by God to preach the word and to pray for the church, right? All of those other things are wonderful, but guess who's supposed to be taking care of them? The people of the church, right? That's what, that's what it is. Part of the issue is that is that there are so many people who want to have their needs met. There are not nearly enough people who want to meet the needs. Let me say that again. There are so many people who want to have their needs met, there are not enough people who want to actually meet those needs because it's so much easier to sit back and be fed and be fed and have everything brought to us. It's a lot more difficult to get up into the, go go into the kitchen and prepare that meal. It's so much easier to have people bring everything to you. My wife is smirking because uh, you know, she, she does a lot of the cooking. I, I, okay. I cook chicken tenders. I can do chicken. (laughs) A number of churches simply do not have enough leaders to meet all of the needs of the people in the church. Sometimes we get it into our heads and it's reinforced by the pastor. Okay, hopefully I have not done this, but sometimes it's reinforced by the pastor that it's the professional Christians. 
Those of us who get paid, it's the professional Christians who are supposed to do all of the ministry. That's, stop shaking your head. It's the, those who are supposed to do all of the work, but nothing could be further from the truth. As a pastor, you know what my job is? My job is to work myself out of a job. My job is to train you to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12 says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And why did he do this? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. The job, my job is to preach the word and to pray for you all and to train you all to do the work of the ministry. Now, to help meet these needs, as we continue in Acts chapter 6, to help meet these needs, the apostles made a proposal. This is what they said. They, they told the church to select seven men to do this task. Hey, we're going to choose seven men who are going to help serve the widows and help make sure that all of the widows are getting the things that they need. And in doing this, they laid the groundwork for the office that we know today as deacons. Now, there, there's some controversy. There's some discussion as to whether these seven were the first deacons or if this was just setting the precedent for what was going to come down the road. For our purposes today, it doesn't matter. Okay, but if you want to dig into it, you can. This there, like I said, now the church wasn't to find just anybody to serve. Okay, they didn't just go, hey, we need some volunteers. All right, do you have a pulse? Can you put together two or three words to make a sentence? Okay, you're good. Right? That's not what the apostles told them to do. The apostles laid out some guidelines and said, these are the type of men you are to look for. And it, it says that these qualifications included being men, having a good reputation, being full of the Holy Spirit, and being full of wisdom. Now, I realize I'm wading into some thorny, thorny waters here. I don't know. Can you have thorny waters? Okay. All right. Right now in my head, I've got that scene from, I've got that scene from Stand By Me with the leeches. That's what I'm... Is that what you just, okay, anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm wading into some, some murky water. So there we go, that's what I meant to say. I'm not going to stay too long on this point, but why does it matter that the apostles said that they were to choose men, all right? They didn't just say, choose some people, all right, I know people are watching up on the camera, they're wondering why I'm pointing at Diana, all right, it matters because it's men that God has called to lead the church, that's who God has called to lead his church is men. We are, supposed to, we are supposed to be the spiritual leaders in our home. And as a result, men, we are also supposed to be the spiritual leaders in the church. And I know that this is a thorny subject. I know as soon as I said it, some of y'all, you started bristling, like, you know, went all porcupine on me and everything. All right, bear with me here. I've had a number of conversations. I, I, I talk to my wife about this all the time. This is, this is a conversation she, have, she and I have on a regular basis. All right, I ha we have this conversation, and this is what I've, what I've pulled out of this. There are often times where women are frustrated because God has gifted them to serve in a certain way, but they can't do it because the Bible says men are called to lead the church. And that causes frustration, especially when those women look out across the church landscape and they see a bunch of men sitting around doing nothing. Amen. Okay. All right. And it, it's, it's frustrating to them. Bear with me. It's frustrating to these ladies that there are men who are put into positions of leadership simply because they are men. 
right? And I can understand your frustration. Trust me, I understand 100% the frustration that that is. Being a male working in the, an elementary school, trust me, I, I can feel a little bit of what you're experiencing, right? I, I, I get that. So here's, here's, let me say two things and then we're gonna move on from this. Number one, men, we need to step up, okay? We need to step up and we need to serve our families and we need to serve the church in the way that God has called us to serve. We have no excuse for sitting around doing nothing when the scripture is clear that God has called men to lead the church. And that frustration that women are feeling yeah, there might still be some of that frustration, but if we step up and we do the things that God has called us to do, they're going to see that and they're going to go, yeah, he is doing a great job in regards to that. We need to be willing to lay down our lives for our Savior, for our families, and for our church. That is what God has, as God has called us as men to do. Sitting in a, if you are a male, sitting in a pew doing absolutely nothing is unacceptable. That is, that is completely unacceptable, and it is a sin according to what Scripture says. I know somebody told me I wasn't pulling any punches today. I figured, hey, if I'm not pulling punches, I'm going to throw some haymakers today. All right? Now, ladies, I can understand your frustration, and let me encourage you in this. Keep serving. Even if you see men that are sitting around doing nothing, or you see men that are inadequate and not fulfilling the roles that God has called them to do, keep serving. Knowing that, excuse me, knowing that your service is for Christ and not for the approval of others. Know that when you serve and you are doing the things that you, God has, excuse me, has gifted you to do, you are doing it for Christ and you're not doing it for the approval of others. The other requirements that they list out is that you are to have, that the men that they chose were to have a good reputation. The apostles wanted men who were well respected among the church. They needed to be above reproach, and they needed to be well-spoken of among all the people. They, they, they weren't necessarily popular, but they were people that you could rely on and had a good thing. This wasn't a popularity contest, but someone who was willing to serve. That's the key word in all of this, is the willingness to serve. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says this, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. The men chosen also needed to be full of both the Holy Spirit and to be full of wisdom. It is very likely that that wisdom that they had was a byproduct of being full of the Holy Spirit. When you are in complete submission to the Holy Spirit and you are doing the things that, that the Holy Spirit is calling on you to do, then you are going to, um, you're going to have that wisdom. As believers... The moment that you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit. He comes in and he indwells in you. You are completely sealed by him. However, we can experience different levels of the Spirit's power based on our submission to him. All right, Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 says this, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. When we are full of the Holy Spirit, those are the things that are going to be pouring out of us. And when a person is full of the Spirit, he will have the wisdom needed to serve properly. 
Not to serve as a means of saying, hey, everybody, look at me. Look how great I am. I, I, I'm, I've been doing all of these things for the church. We serve in order to further the kingdom of God and to meet the needs of others. When we're full of the Holy Spirit, we'll know exactly how to do that. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Now, these men were chosen by the church. It wasn't the pastor. It wasn't the apostles who said, okay, we like this guy over here and we like this guy over here. They turned that over to the church to decide. And the church came back and said, these are the seven men, according to these five qualifications or however many qualifications it was, these are the men that we have chosen that we think will do the best job here. The Bible tells us that the, the names of the men were chosen were Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas. What's amazing about this is, remember, all of the, everything that started this off was, was an argument between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And the Hellenistic Jews were saying, hey, look, the, the, the Hebraic Jews, they're treating us badly because we're Greek, because we've adopted Greek things. All seven of the men that were chosen have Greek names. Right? The, the apostles didn't say, hey, let's choose a bunch of Greeks over here, people with Greek names, because that way it'll calm the Hellenistic Jews down. The entire church said, these are the seven, and every single one of them had a Greek name. In fact, Nicholas, it tells us, he was a convert. He wasn't even Jewish. He was someone who had uh, converted to Judaism and then became a Christian. And they said, you know what? This guy here, he's not even one of us, but he meets the requirements. There's something unique and special about him. In light of what you said, we want him to be one of the servants in the church. After the men were selected, they were presented to the apostles who prayed over them and commissioned them to serve in the church. And by doing this, it helped to quell that controversy. It helped to meet the needs of the church. And it allowed the apostles to devote more time to prayer and the ministry of the word and leading the church. Now, it's really important to note something here. It's very important to note. These men were not chosen to be leaders in the church. They were not chosen and given some special authority put up here so that everybody could look and go, Wow, look at those guys. That's not what they were chosen for. They were chosen to be the servants of the church. And we hear that word. We hear the word servant. And in our minds, we get something, we, we start to see subservient, where it means that, that we're below. That's not what being, being a Christian, that's not what a servant is. A servant is someone who is willing to lay down his life for the people that he has been called to serve. It was not a special privilege to lead the church, nor were they given the same authority as the apostles. Sometimes, and I gotta be careful how I say this, sometimes in our denomination, in, in, in being Baptist, when we hear the word deacon, and that's, that's where uh, the, the word dia, diaconus, I think I'm saying that right, is found in this, and that's where it's been appropriated to say the word deacon. When we hear deacon, we seem to think of someone who runs the church. 
we seem to think of someone who has some kind of special authority and they get to make the decisions for the church. And once a month they show up and um, they, they, they present it to, to the, uh, the congregation and the congregation just nods their head and thinks it's okay. That's not what a deacon is. A deacon is someone who is called to serve and meet the needs of the church. Right? And, and I've heard so many horror stories of pastors who show up to church and the deacons have gone and changed the lock on the door. And that's how he knew that he was leaving the church. All right? That the, the, deacons, the, the deacons are the ones who, you know, they got to be deacons not because they had a servant's heart, but because they were the one who gave the most money. Or because their grandfather was a deacon, and their great-grandfather was a deacon, and their daddy was a deacon. That's how they got it. Deacons should be chosen because they are the servants of the church. They have a good reputation, but more than that, they are willing to lay down their life for the church. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. As servants, that's what we're called to do. Now, the third point here is the results of all of this. Why did all of this take place? The results were pretty dramatic. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says this. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. When these men were set aside to meet the needs of the people in the church, it freed up the apostles to spend more time praying, and it freed them up to spend more time preaching and seeking God as far as the leadership and the direction that the church was supposed to go. When, he, when it freed them up to do that, three things happened. Number one, the word of God spread. The message that they were preaching spread throughout all of Jerusalem. It, it started to go even further than it had already gone. The second thing that we see is that the number of disciples increased greatly. What was happening was the, the members of the church were putting their faith in Christ and they were growing in their relationship. And then they were going to their neighbors and their friends. And clearly I'm implying this from the scripture, but I think that this is how it goes down. Twelve men in all of the city were going to have a difficult time doing this. The disciples that were already disciples were growing in Christ and they were going to their neighbors and saying, hey, let me share with you what is going on. And they shared their faith with those people and their neighbors became disciples and they started to grow and then they went and shared their faith. And because, they, because the word of God was spreading in that way, lots of people were coming to be disciples. I, I saw a quote this week um, from Charles Spurgeon. All right, I love, I love Charles Spurgeon. I have a shirt with his face on it. It's pretty cool. Um, I love Charles Spurgeon. And he has a quote that said, every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. Every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. And what that means is that we are either, we either believe God and we're sharing our faith with others. We are being a missionary to others and raising them up or we're just playing a game. We're just playing a game. As believers, we are supposed to be making disciples who make disciples. Matthew 28, 19, or 18 through 20 tells us full on, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them and making disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. If we're not doing that, something's wrong. It's not optional. It's not for the professional Christians. It's for everybody. The disciples increase greatly. The, and then the third thing, and this is, I think this is incredible, 
a large number of the priests, the ones who were opposed to all of this, the ones who should have seen Jesus as the Messiah, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit, and they were able to connect the dots and say, yes, Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah, and they put their faith in him. When the focus is placed on prayer and the Bible, it is amazing what God can do and will do through his people. When our focus is on the right things, the world is going to explode for Jesus Christ. Once again, as we look at this chapter, once again, we see Satan trying to dismantle and disrupt the church. And once again, we see the church, because the apostles were full of the Holy Spirit, once again, we see the church rising to the occasion. Rather than folding under the pressure, they rose and they met. The, they saw the problem, and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were able to approach it in such a way that the result led to an increase in the number of believers. Imagine that. An argument in the church led to hundreds of people coming to know Christ because of the way that they handled it. Too often we hear stories of arguments in the church, and people hear those stories and they say, well, that's how you all treat each other, and you're supposed to be believers, you're supposed to love each other? I don't want any part of that. If that's how you're going to treat and be ugly to each other, let me, let me leave you with this. Gentlemen, let me ask you, are you living your life in such a way that you could be considered as for the role of a deacon? Okay, let me, let me ask, say that again. Are you living your life in such a way that you could be considered as a role for a deacon? There's a pastor. Um, I read his books and listen to his podcast. His name is Mark Dever. He's got a church in Washington, D.C. called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And he will go to young men in his, in his church and he will say, listen, if you're going to be here for any extended period of time, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life that in a few years we would come to you and say, we'd like you to serve in this role? What are you doing in that? So gentlemen, I want to ask you the same question. If you've been in this church for any extended period of time, or you're planning to be in this church for any extended period of time, what are you doing with your life that when we sit down, we would say, yes, I think that guy would make a good servant? What are you doing with your life in regards to that? The second thing, ladies, I want to I ask you to say, can the same thing be said of you? And I know that the scripture says that the, the offices in the church are supposed to be held by men because men are the ones that God has called to do that. But ladies, that doesn't let you off the hook. You are still supposed to live your lives in such a way that when people look at it, they, they would say, yes, that person is full of the Holy Spirit. That person has a good reputation. Everyone is called to be a spirit. Um, to be a spirit. Everyone is called to be a servant. There we go. Everyone is called to be a servant. Everyone is called to live a life dependent on the Holy Spirit that is marked by a good reputation and, is being, and by being spirit-filled. Being spirit-filled. When we as a church are living this way, when every single one of us, regardless of whether we hold an office, whether we're being considered for an office, or whether um, we're just a, a part of the church, when we are all living this way, praying and sharing the scripture and making disciples, the world will be turned upside down. Matthew 5, 16 in closing says this, in the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord. I thank you that, that you have called each, each and every single one of us to be a servant. Lord, it's not, it's not a, 
a, a position of, of authority. It's not a position of, of we get to make the decisions and we get to do this, that, and the other. But Lord, you have called every single one of us to be a servant, to, to meet the needs of other people. And Lord, we're all given, excuse me, we're all given different roles in the church uh, in which we are to, to serve and to minister. But Lord, when we put the, we, as we've seen, when we put the needs of others ahead of ours, when we, are, when we are reaching out and we are putting the needs of other people ahead of ours and we are um, meeting those needs so that the, the pastors and the leaders in the church will have more time to spend um, studying the word and preaching and proclaiming the gospel, the world is going to be turned upside down. That We will see lives given to you over and over and over again. And Lord, I know there was some stuff that I said this morning that's, that's going to be hard for people to swallow. Um, Lord, I know that they, there's some difficult truths in, in, in the things that I said. And Lord, I hope that I, I said um, some, some truths in, in those things. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to work on us, that we would um, be submissive to you, that we would, uh, we would listen to the things that, that, were, that were coming from the Holy Spirit, and that we would not just brush them off because they don't line up with the, the, the way we feel or the way that we think, Lord. Father, if there's anyone who has not given their heart to you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. I know that this was a, 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 a not necessarily, there wasn't necessarily a gospel message, but the things that, were, that, that the church was able to do, they were able to do because their lives had been changed by Jesus Christ. That their lives had been changed and they were able to set aside their prejudices and their, their, their biases and those things of between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews they were able to set those things aside in order to further the kingdom. So, Father, if there's anyone who needs to do those things today, I pray that today would be the day that that would be done. Lord, help us all to be different as a result of being here today. We ask all of this in your beautiful name. Amen.